0: Thank you very much. I'm very honoured to be here and delighted to be back to share some ideas with you. And I wanted to start by congratulating the Iranian Studies Program at Stanford, which I think is by now probably the leading program in the world on this topic. And when I tell people in Washington I'm going to be at this program they say oh it must be huge they think there's hundreds of researchers and I say no it's basically one person <laughs> and you know who it is Dr. Milani is really fantastic his productivity his energy is amazing and I want to congratulate him on this great success <laughs> Today I want to share uh, some questions with you at the beginning. They're questions that haunt me and I think they might be haunting other people as well in this era of democracy in America. They're haunting because we can't get away from them and they're about why dictatorships continue. Why is it that we cannot end dictatorships? They haunt me for a personal reason. I'm one of many Iranians who, in 79, went rushing back from the West. I drove in my car from England to Iran, and there were many of us. And when we got to Iran, we were very hopeful. There were engineers, doctors of different types, all kinds of specializations. And we were all hopeful about the future. And whoever you talk to, everybody wanted a more free democratic Iran. And of course, within a very short amount of time, we failed. And that failure is not just about Iran. If you go back to the history of revolutions from the French Revolution on to the Russian Revolution 1917, <coughs> on to the Chinese Revolution, onto the Cuban Revolution, on and on and on till the Arab Spring, we have the same pattern revolutions against dictatorship often, most often, end by bringing dictatorship in another form. And the question is why? And why is it that democracies have not achieved full democracy? Why is it that in the United States, we are facing this situation with President Trump? What is it about us human beings that makes this kind of progress very difficult? I'm a psychologist and I'm going to try to convince you that psychology has a role in explaining this puzzle. And I want to focus on cognition, how we think, and action, how we behave. And I want to argue that at the foundation of political behavior is really psychology. And one of the reasons why we are so challenged by dictatorship, why we get pulled back to dictatorship, is because of our psychological makeup. Now there's really two ways of answering this question about the puzzle of dictatorship from a psychological perspective. One is the traditional Freudian approach, which is well known and has some merit. And the other approach is the new research on implicit processes. It comes from more an evolutionary perspective. It focuses on the research done in neuroscience, cognitive science, other areas focusing on brain, but I'm not just going to talk about hardwiring in the brain. I'm going to talk about hard wiring out there. And I'm going to argue that there are two forms of hard wiring in psychology. One is, Our inside processes, our internal mechanisms. The second is the cultural processes out there. So I'm going to argue for two kinds of psychology. So I'm going to begin with Freud and move on to the new psychologies. Then I'm going to talk about political plasticity. Political plasticity. Political plasticity is about how malleable our behavior is in the political domain. And I'm going to argue that there are certain limitations to how fast and how much and in what ways we can change. Then I'm going to move on to talk about a model that I'm working on which focuses on plasticity more broadly. So let me begin with the puzzle. The puzzle of the magnetism of dictators. If we look at the pattern of revolutions, it's clear. Most revolutions against dictatorships end up by bringing another form of dictator. The French Revolution ended up with Napoleon Bonaparte who didn't just kill the king he set up himself as Emperor, he set up his family as kings and queens around Europe. The Russian Revolution got rid of the Tsars but placed into position new Tsars and we have Tsar Putin now. The Chinese Revolution actually continued the very style of leadership of the old emperors. There's a (coughs) wonderful book called The Last Emperor. It's about Mao. The new emperors of China are really ruling in the form of the old emperors. There are actually more billionaires in China now than in the United States. The Arab Spring has led to more dictators. And of course in Iran we have the new dictators in the form of the mullahs. So how do we explain this resilience? Freud explained it by emphasizing the irrational, the idea that in most cases human beings are not aware of the factors that influence them. His idea of irrationality arose out of his model of personality. With Freud, we begin the world with personality focused on the id, which is driven by the pleasure principle. But the pleasure principle is soon encompassed by the realities of the world. Pressure builds up on the infant. The ego evolves and the superego, the superego as a conscience, And one of the costs of becoming civilized is that the conscience, which involves the taboos of society, represses and we push down what is uncomfortable for us into the unconscious. So according to Freud, the unconscious builds up over time and as we grow up, civilization has repressed us and created an unconscious that forever influences our behavior without us being aware of it. Now the Freudian model has many qualities. I think it has benefits. He's still probably the only genius we've had in psychology. But um, you know, I once set myself the task of reading everything he'd ever written and it took me about six months of solid reading every morning and at the end of it I thought, gosh 99% of this is garbage. (laughs) (laughs) But the 1% of genius is fantastic. So he has brilliance but there are problems with his model. How do I know there is an unconscious? How do I know there is repression? The evidence is not very solid. So I would like to take a different perspective on the research on implicit processes. Implicit processes versus explicit processes. Implicit is what we are not aware of. Explicit is what we are conscious of. This new research on implicit processes argues that our mind and the mind is simply the brain in action. Our mind is the result of evolutionary processes. It has evolved to think in particular ways. Kahneman characterized this as thinking fast and slow. System one, system two thinking. There are other ways of characterizing this. For example, those of you who are psychologists have come across this idea of persuasion through central and peripheral routes. Think about advertising. Think about how cars are sold to us. When they want to sell us a car, do they tell us in boring detail all the technical characteristics of the car? No, they put the car on an open road with glamorous people in the car driving in the highway waving to us. They're trying to persuade us through the peripheral route, that is, the route that impacts emotions, not the central route which involves cognitive engagement. So there are different ways of characterizing these ways of thinking I would like to characterize them in terms of explicit and implicit. We have evolved to function in particular ways cognitively. We need both implicit and explicit thinking. Implicit thinking typically involves fast thinking. It's split-second thinking. For example, Imagine I am walking across a field. It's 50,000 years ago, and I see Dr. Milani from a distance. I can only see him from a distance. I have a glimpse of his face, and I have to decide instantly. Is this somebody I can trust? Should I walk towards him, or should I start running now? That split-second decision is based on just the image of a face. We know from research that if I show you a hundredth of a second image of faces and I get estimates from you of how much you trust these faces, how much confidence you have in these faces, etc., those Ratings will be a good prediction of whether that face will get your vote or not. Even though you're not conscious, you're not conscious of the face. It's an implicit process. So we know that implicit processes influence us. They're split-second judgments. We need them because they have helped us throughout evolution. However, they can also get us into trouble that split-second decision can get us into trouble. It can be incorrect. So the approach I'm taking is one based on evolution, the idea that cognitive styles have evolved over very long-term periods. We are still influenced by implicit processes that happen without our conscious awareness. This has to do with hardwiring in the brain. And I'm going to talk about that later. But it would be a huge mistake to think of hardwiring as only being related to my brain. Hardwiring is also in culture, it is out there. And here we have to go back to the work of the Russian psychologist Lev Vygotsky. Vygotsky was brilliant. He was unfortunately one of these uh, researchers who lived during the time of Stalin and uh, suffered a great deal because of that. But one of Vygotsky's great insights was that cognition takes place not just inside the head, it takes place first of all between people. Cognitive style is out there already before we come to life. It is there after we leave this world. So, in terms of cognitive style, we have to see it as part of culture. What do I mean by hardwiring in culture? Let me give you some examples. Under number five, I've given the example of categorization. (coughs) Categorization is a process that is universal in humans. All humans categorize. We categorize things, we categorize other people. For example, categorization of people based on gender, on ethnicity, etc. categorization is hardwired within us in that we are inclined to cognitively categorize but categorization is also hardwired in our cultures think about stereotypes and how difficult it is to change stereotypes think about how difficult it has been to change racial stereotypes this discussion in politics over the last week tells us how difficult it is to change racial stereotypes. So when we're thinking about hardwiring the traditional way to think about hardwiring is to say, oh there's hardwiring in the brain. But we forget there's also hardwiring in our cultures and there's continuity in our cultures And I want to focus on that. Let me move on to discuss the idea of political plasticity. This is number six in the scheme. So, plasticity is a topic that is very hot in psychology. There's actually a journal called Plasticity. And neuroscientists have explored plasticity a great deal. However, my interest is in political plasticity, the malleability of behavior and cognition in the political domain. To what extent can we change political behavior? And when we think about revolutions, after all, revolutions are actually radical attempts to change behaviour. And when we think about revolutions from this perspective, the failure of revolution to move from dictatorship to democracy is really a failure to change behaviour in that direction fast enough. That is the big challenge. Let me give you an example of the kind of um, plasticity I'm talking about. We have to take radical examples. Think about leadership. Every major society has leadership. Why is this? Can we function without leadership? So just asking that question leads you to think, well, wait a minute, how would that even work? If we think about the Marxist ideal of the classless society, the vision was that a classless society would eventually lead to the dissolution of government because according to Marx, you don't need government when you don't have classes. Classes are only there, I mean government is only there, to protect the interests of the ruling class. Once you don't have a class system, then you don't need government, you don't need leadership in that way. But is that possible given our cognitive characteristics and given our cultures? What do we need to change? How do we need to change to get a different form of leadership? or no leadership at all. (coughs) Think about ownership. I was in Cuba this last summer, and of course there they have collective ownership. That's a radical form of change, but it's not succeeding. As far as I can see, it was not succeeding. Why? Because it was not incentivizing individuals There's a line of research on this in psychology. It's on social loafing. Social loafing research. Let me describe to you one of the studies. Imagine you come in and I'm running a study on social loafing. There would be a machine at that end and a rope. And I would tell you that In this study, you have to pull on the rope, and I'm going to measure how hard you pull. There's going to be a gauge that tells us how hard you pull. In one condition, you're going to be pulling by yourself. In the second condition, you're going to be pulling with a group of other people. Now, in order so you don't get distracted, I blindfold you. So you're pulling either by yourself, blindfolded, or you're pulling with a group of other people, blindfolded. Now, of course, this is a psychology study. You know there must be a trick. The trick is that when you think you're pulling with other people, they're not pulling. You're the only one pulling. So actually I get a measure of you pulling when you think you're by yourself and when you think you are with another group. Now this study with American participants has traditionally led to a very clear outcome. Participants pull harder when they think they're by themselves. When they're in the group, they have social loafing. That is, they pull less hard. Now, what does that tell us about incentives? It, it indicates that, well, if you're setting up a factory, you better have an individualist sy- system because otherwise people won't work. But there's also a literature, a research literature on social laboring, because there are conditions where we know people will actually work harder in a group. For example, think about a rowing team. Eight rowers in a race. Well, they actually pull harder in a group than by themselves. There are conditions in which we work harder as group members. So, coming back to hardwiring. It is not the case necessarily that we are hardwired to work harder when we have individual incentives. We can set up conditions where we work harder in groups. So that's an area of flexibility. This is important because by mapping out where we have flexibility, where we can change behavior, and where it's much more difficult. We map out the possibilities for change through revolution. But of course there has to be systematic efforts to understand the science and to make plans. Let me give you some examples of continuity in the cultural arena. I talked about leadership. And how difficult it is to change leadership style. A lot of people have noticed that before and after revolutions, often we get the same leadership style, but under a different name. For example, in Iran, we had the Shah, and we had the Marjaitar lead. And really, I can't see much difference because they're both absolute dictators. One is more willing to kill than the other, but there's not in terms of leadership style, much difference. There are other subtle continuities. For example, before the revolution in Iran, if you go back to the time of our father's grandfathers, I remember in my grandfather's house, if you went there, everybody would be sitting on the floor on carpets. If you go to families houses now in Tehran or anywhere else in Iran, they're more likely to be using modern furniture. So on the surface you think, well this is a big change because they've moved from sitting on the floor and on carpets and on pillows, they're going to modern furniture. But this kind of change actually hides continuity. Because if you look at a deeper level, where people sit in the room is determined by the same hierarchical structure. When you walk into the room, the most important people still sit in the same place they used to 100 years ago. The people who are less important like me, would sit by the door. So, whether there is modern furniture or not, there is a deeper continuity. And it's that deeper continuity that we have to look at when we want to explain the continuation of relationships. When we come back to this issue of regimes and the magnetism of dictators. We have to remember that to change leader-follower relations, it's not enough to change what is in here in the mind. We have to change relationships and changing relationships horizontally and vertically involves not just changing individuals, but changing collectives. And that is what proves to be extremely difficult after revolutions. If you look at the post-revolutionary period in Iran, in other revolutions, what we typically get is ideals set out, but... The ideals don't match the cognitive and social skills that are available to reach those ideals. So, for example, in terms of leadership style, what we need to have is changed relationships horizontally and vertically. But what we get is people going back to the same relationships but using different rhetoric. So the rhetoric changes, the labels change for the leaders, but the relationship styles stay the same. So this brings us to a very difficult point. The difficulty is that when we look at change over time, we realize that Change in political behavior takes place over very long-term periods. Let me give you an example. In Athens 2,500 years ago, they had a form of democracy. The people who could vote were free men. Slaves and women could not vote. over 2,000 years later the American Revolution brings the vote to free men. Women and slaves could not vote. It took another couple of hundred years before women got the vote and it's only since the 1960s that we've had minorities actually legally being able to pressure and get the vote. It takes a very long time to get political change. Now, there are exceptions. There are exceptions. For example, Japan after the Second World War. How did that change come about? It came about through the United States and other powers completely taking over Japan, forcing political change, Forcing the Emperor to change his role. And that was through absolute despotism. General MacArthur was in absolute control of Japan at that time. So we do get periods in history where you get rapid change, but it comes through complete control of that society. It is very difficult to bring about rapid change otherwise. So, coming back to my experience after the revolution in Iran, yes, we were naive. Because we were thinking that we could get that kind of rapid change in a short amount of time without having plans to bring about the cognitive skills and the social relations skills that we needed. And that was idealism, it was naivety, but uh, I'm not saying we, uh, we should not have done it, but I'm saying we were uh, probably a little naive in that respect. Let me talk a little bit about the work I'm doing right now on this model of political plasticity applied to revolutions. Most of psychological research that has focused on revolutions, has really addressed one question. How and in what conditions does does collective action take place in order to achieve a revolution? That's been the question. But I think that question is only a starting point. It's only a starting point because we now know that Achieving regime change is only the beginning of the work. You can achieve regime change, but it doesn't mean that you will get system change. There's a very important distinction that a group of psychologists have made between within system change and between system change. Let me give you a scenario to think about. Imagine you are having a dream. And in the dream, you're swimming in a river and you see a crocodile come behind you and you're very frightened. And you swim faster and faster to get away and you get to the river bank and escape that is within system change. You've gone from the water to the river bank and you've escaped the crocodile. Now imagine you're having a dream and the crocodile is chasing you and you're swimming as fast as you can and you get so frightened that you scream and wake up. Going from sleeping to being awake that is between system change. What we need through revolution is between system change. What we typically get is within system change. That is, we go from one dictatorship to another. We don't move from dictatorship to a different form of government. So far, most of the research has been on, how do we get a revolution? We now know that's the easy part. That's the easy part. Getting the revolution is easy relative to the next part. So, if you look at my outline there on number 12. Number one is under their collective mobilization to achieve regime change. Well, that's the easy part. That's really the beginning. The next part is, well, the rulers resist change, the regime collapses, and there is a brief post-revolution opportunity bubble. It's an opportunity bubble. It's there briefly. You can bring about change in the right direction, but that bubble bursts. It's very brief. Why? Because... in that period of post-revolution, the kinds of personalities who strive to get leadership, those personalities are potential dictators again. Unfortunately, in terms of personality style, There are potential dictators in every group, and particularly in those post-revolutionary periods, you get the Stalins marching through. You get Khomeini marching through. These are not pro-democracy personalities. These are strict pro-dictatorship personalities who use what I have called the springboard to dictatorship to get to power. So in that brief period after the revolution, that is where we have to do more research, more thinking, more practical projects to get things right. And that's where we typically fall into the hands of the dictators again. Now, number five there are limitations to how much and how fast cognitions and actions can be brought in line with system change goals. So we have a revolution, we topple the regime, we claim we want a democracy, but to what extent do the political goals match the cognitive skills and social skills that we have available? That is the big challenge. How can we quickly change those cognitive skills, social skills. Of course, it's not just a challenge for third world countries. It's also a challenge in the United States. In the United States, we have a population, a substantial part of which is not skilled to participate in democracy does not have the training and education to be full participants and we get the result in the most important elections in the United States barely 50% vote so you only need about 23 24% which is what president trump got to win the election if you have the vote spread out in the states the way you need them. So even in the United States, we have this challenge of developing the kinds of skills we need to participate fully in democracies. And political plasticity is a challenge here as well. And again, the plasticity I'm I'm talking about is not just hardwiring in the brain, it is the characteristics of our culture. It is the stereotypes that are out there in society. It is the rigid rules and norms by which we abide. It is the power structure that we are used to. And it is this system of leadership that is so difficult to change and it's out there. And if psychology has a contribution, it is not just to examine processes such as categorization and stereotyping that are related to our brain and cognitive mechanisms. It is also to look outside in the larger culture and to look closely at the kinds of rigidities, the kinds of hardwiring that are embedded in culture and that are very difficult to change. I'm going to stop there to leave some time for discussion. Thank you.